Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 1, 1 to 7. Um, if you don't have a Bible and like to use one that we provided there under the seat in front of you, a little black hardback book you'll see there, uh, you'll find this on page 991 of those church Bibles. I'm beginning a new series today uh, through 1st and 2nd Timothy, and the, the series is introduced with the subject of confronting false teaching. And I was thinking as I was preparing that about it is... The season where, uh, well, it's approaching flu season. I'll just say it that way. I, I became especially sensitive to such things having worked in schools for a number of years because there might be other places where the flu spreads better than in schools. I don't know of a place though. Um, so it's, it's the time of year where, you know, staff becomes really vigilant when it starts breaking out um, to, to take measures to, to prevent, you know, widespread outbreaks of the flu in school. And so you'll have some of the teachers, even some of the students will get a flu shot uh, to make themselves uh, hopefully less susceptible to getting it. They'll, they'll have policy and they send out email reminders of the policy that students need to stay at home if they have a fever or um, if they're beginning to show symptoms of the flu. Uh, don't give them Motrin in the morning and drop them off anyway. You know, we'll get a reminder like that. And, um, you know, if, you, if teachers see symptoms start to emerge while they're at school, in class, or whatever, they'll pull them out of class, take them to the office, call mom and dad, say they need to come pick them up and so forth. And then, on top of all that, surrounding all that, teachers will be spraying everything with disinfectant. Everything that a, that a student touched or breathed on uh, maybe even the student, him or herself, will get, you know, sprayed. They're disinfecting all the time to try to prevent the outbreak of the flu. Well, you know, confronting false teaching in the church involves a similar approach in the sense that um, you want people to be inoculated so they're less susceptible to be influenced by false teaching. Um, you want to try to prevent it from even entering the environment. So in other words, you're, you're dealing with it on the, uh, on the end of those who are spreading false teaching and also those who are hearing false teaching. And then there might be some cleansing you have to do when it does enter the environment, even in spite of all those measures that you undertake uh, in order to prevent it. But what they definitely also share in common is it requires vigilance vigilance to ensure that that doesn't happen. Well, that's the, that's the topic for today's sermon, and let's unpack that together from 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to ask if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word and just giving special attention to it. Beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... By command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, 
nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship that is from God. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Thanks be to God for his word. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, it always is our delight, God, to approach you with needs, sometimes that we're conscious of, and needs that we are unconscious of. But Lord, we approach knowing that you have spoken in your word and that it's living and true to us. So Lord, we come with the expectation today you have something to say to us and that you will make the scriptures come alive to us today. Would you open our ears and our hearts? Uh, Would you set aside for us all of the distractions calling for our attention? We know that we have all of your attention. God, we pray that you would have all of ours. And so speak, Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, and for your glory. God, would you, as always, move me out of the way and just use me as an instrument to say what you want to say to your people. Give us ears to hear now. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, these opening verses contain two details that are really key to understanding um, this whole letter. And, and the first and obvious one is that it's addressed to Timothy, but Timothy is not an unknown figure uh, for those who have read the New Testament. His name comes up elsewhere. And we learned that Timothy was a young man who had joined Paul on his second missionary journey, and he traveled with Paul and served with Paul for years to follow. And he was mentored by Paul, and they developed a special and affectionate relationship. In fact, it says here in verse 2, you, you may have noticed, Paul calls him my true child in the faith. My true child in the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 9, the last known letter Paul wrote, he wrote to Timothy. And he closes out with some requests. The first is, do your best to come to me soon. In fact, when they had gone to Thessalonica um, on that uh, second missionary journey, they were only there three weeks before they were run out of town by the Jews in Thessalonica. They went to Berea. The Jews from Thessalonica followed them to Berea, ran them out of Berea too. I mean, uh, they're real committed to their hostility, you know. So they, they, they made their way down to Athens, and, and when, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, first letter to the Thessalonians, he, he basically says in so many words, you know, we were afraid our work was in vain. They didn't really have time to be sure things got rooted there. We're, we were afraid our, our work was in vain. And when, when we could stand it no longer, not knowing, we had to hear how things were going. Who did he send back into the hostility? Timothy. And then in Philippians chapter 2, this is especially revealing. Again, you can't appreciate 
the letters to Timothy as well if you don't understand these facts about him. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And do you have those up on the screen? Okay. So you can follow along. It says, Paul's saying to the church at Philippi, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul understood the value of having somebody who was really with him. Really with him. He didn't, he didn't look out for his own interests. He wasn't trying to pull things in a direction he'd like to see him go. He wasn't swayed by what other people tried to influence him to do or to think or to say. He was with Paul entirely. And you know, it's probably true in, in all kinds of organizations, but especially true in churches. You know, there are people who will say they want leaders, but what they really want is somebody who will walk out in front, go in the direction they've already decided to go. Like the majorette in the marching band. We just want you to walk out in front there with a baton, you know. Timothy was not that kind of guy. And Paul, listen, Paul had all kinds of people who were that way. In fact, the end of his second letter to Timothy, he names the people who have abandoned him. He, he mentions that, that at, his, at his trial, nobody came to his defense. He had all kinds of people like that. Timothy was exceptional. He had no one like him, he said. He was with him. That's Timothy that he's writing to. And the second key detail here is that Timothy was ministering in Ephesus. And what's most important about that, most significant about that, again, a detail that the, the letter doesn't really make sense if you don't understand what was going on in Ephesus and what Paul prophesied would happen in Ephesus. But in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, when Paul was about to leave the Ephesian elders, he called them to himself and said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, elders, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You know, the only, the only thing worse than a wolf in sheep's clothing is a wolf in the shepherd's clothing. And some of the elders in Ephesus were exactly that. And that's the situation uh, that Paul is speaking into because it has unfolded exactly the way he said it was. And because Timothy is who he is, the guy that Paul has no one like him, and because the church at Ephesus is what it is, Timothy's the guy who gets the assignment. And what is the assignment? It says in verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Timothy, you're so special. I have a, I have a privileged assignment for you. I want you to stay there in the middle of all that mess. Deal with all of the false teaching and false teachers 
presumably some of whom are elders themselves. I, I want you to stay there. I always, I always have said it, it, it reads to me like, uh, you know, you, he urges him to remain at Ephesus because Ephesus is the kind of place you would want to leave if you're a pastor. <laughs> remain at Ephesus in order to stop false teachers because they are devoting themselves, it says, to endless genealogies which promote speculations. You put that together and what you have is endless speculation. Just endless speculation. People can go on and on and on about things that are just speculative and not profitable to anybody. It's sort of like men sitting around a barbershop arguing about who do you think would win, Vince Lombardi's Green Bay Packers or Bill Belichick's New England Patriots. Well, I mean, it's, you've got an opinion probably on that, some of you. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just sort of, it's entertaining to talk about, right? Recreational, but nobody will ever know the answer to that. You can just go on and on and on speculating about that kind of thing. You'll never know the answer. And guess what? Whether you do or don't, nobody cares. I mean, it, it, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't have any impact on the real world. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. They're devoting themselves to endless genealogies that promote speculations. They're majoring on minor things. And so if it's, if it's not destructive, it's misleading at the very least that it turns people's attention to things that are insignificant and fails to give attention to things that are eternally significant. Timothy Remain there and charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And here's one of the things we can be assured of by that statement. Doctrine matters. It's out of style. And I'll come back to that in just a few minutes. People treat it as insignificant. It, it matters to God. It mattered to Paul who said, you remain there for that purpose. The health and the future of the church in Ephesus depended on sound teaching being delivered steadfastly over time and not allowing for false teaching to make its way in. That's the assignment. The goal, it says in verse 5, is to stir up love from a pure heart, good, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Because endless genealogies and, and speculation... Uh, really are not uh, pursued out of love for people. It's sort of, sort of out of a self-interest. Many times it's sort of to appear to know more than other people, right? But it's not out of love for anybody else. And it certainly is missing the gospel, which would be loving to proclaim in the first place. And he wants to prevent believers, it says, from swerving into empty discussion. And he comes back to this, the last phrase in the first letter to Timothy basically comes back to this phrase that by professing false teaching, some have swerved from the faith. You see, that's what's at issue. That this, that what's going on there has captivated some people's attention. It might be intriguing. It might be interesting. It might be appealing but it's causing them to swerve from the faith. And again, that coming even from elders who are charged with the spiritual care of the flock.
shepherds, or sorry, wolves, wolves in shepherds' clothing. And it is a reminder that just because somebody quotes the Bible doesn't mean their teaching is biblical. And see, this is really, this is really common and easy to miss. But these, these, these are people are drawing from the Bible. They're talking about the law. They're surely quoting Bible verses and that kind of thing. But just because they're quoting from the Bible doesn't mean their teaching is biblical. If they quote some small part of the Bible in a way that's not consistent with the rest of the Bible, that's not biblical teaching. It's error and misleading and destructive. And so, uh, whereas there are only certain times of the year um, that are flu season, every season, every season is false teaching season. I mean, the only thing you need to do for false teaching to emerge and then flourish is just to leave it unattended. Uh, just fail to teach sound doctrine consistently, false teaching will mer uh, grow up in its place. It's like weeds in your yard. Like if you do nothing to your yard, if, if it's not fertilized and seeded well, weeds will emerge. They don't need your help. It, it, that'll just happen. And false teaching is the same way. And so I just want to uh, identify here quickly five dangers of infection by false teaching and then two defenses against it, okay? Five dangers, two defenses. There are probably more dangers we could identify and also more defenses. But danger number one is just dismissing doctrine as unimportant and in some cases even undesirable. Um, there, there are you know, people who make light of and even ridicule um, doctrine, doctrine divides, and nobody's interested in that and these kinds of things. Very common in modern American evangelicalism to just pass it off as unimportant. I would just ask you, based on what you read in verse 3 in your Bible, does that appear to be unimportant to God? Yeah, I would say no. In which case, I don't care if it's unimportant to somebody else. I don't care if, if people aren't interested in that. God wouldn't have put it in the Bible if he didn't think you ought to be interested in it. But it's very common in American evangelicalism. I'd say uh, this mindset actually reveals itself pretty frequently in, even in modern worship music. This has been my own sort of opinion and assessment, so maybe I should put that disclaimer on it. Um, this is sort of my opinion of things, but again, it's just reflective of a, a sort of climate where um, people are a little less concerned about sound doctrine. That's just not one of the things that seems important. And so you get that reflected in songs uh, very often, where some songwriters are just sloppy with lyrics. And there's a certain feeling or sentiment that they want to convey. Uh, they do that quite effectively. The substance of it can be messy and sometimes is just untrue. And this has been a little bit of a conversation. We've had some that I, I've had with some of our, um, you know, worship leaders and that sort of thing is that we need to sing what's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things you can do in your private worship where God knows your heart right? And that's, that's what's significant. The particularities of your words might not matter so much there. But 
What the words that we put into the mouths of the people of God, that matters. I mean, when it comes to congregational singing, uh, it's not just the thought that counts. Right? The, the words count too. Because they actually shape the way people think and what they believe. You know, Jesus didn't say, love the Lord with all your heart and half your mind. <laughs> and so it is important. That's the first danger. Number two, there's a danger in divorcing our faith from church history. So, so believing in the, in the divine inspiration of Scripture, we have a very high view of this book. We do believe God has spoken. As Jesus said, every jot and tittle is from him, that this is, that this is his word. But that doesn't mean that we open it up and read it um, like in every generation as if it's never been opened before. We don't pick it up like it's a new thing. Nobody else read it. And we don't re reinterpret it in every generation or as if uh, everybody else to, for the last 2,000 years was blinded by tradition or something that they didn't really understand. And now, finally, we understand what the Bible really meant. Surely somebody in the last 2,000 years got stuff right, right? So um, divorcing ourselves from any sort of uh, historical understanding of the Scriptures and historical teaching is a dangerous place to be. It is a dangerous place to be. Uh, Jeremiah 6.16, I, I, uh, I didn't even mark it, but it refers to um, the, the ancient path I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn here quickly. Didn't, uh, didn't mark my place. So pardon me, but he says this. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Now you got to understand, this is, that is spoken in Jeremiah to a people that are getting ready to encounter judgment they never could have imagined. They're getting ready to be able to be carried off into captivity. I mean, the words, the words are sobering if you read the book of Jeremiah, what's coming their way. And what's happened is they have, they have absolutely forsaken the ancient path. It's not just that they've forgotten. They've been reminded of it and still forsaken it. What God had said was good. They've shrugged off as undesirable. Don't divorce the faith from church history. Danger number three, fascination with spiritual novelties. By that I mean, you know, something new. This actually goes very much hand in hand with divorcing from church history. That is, you know, a new way of reading the Bible that nobody else ever discovered. Right, there's suddenly some, there's some teacher, and it's fascinating, you know? It's intriguing. But nobody else has had that angle, ever. Or some new spiritual insight. Somebody says they heard from, have heard from the Lord, but they proceed to say something the Lord never told anybody else about something fundamentally true. And I don't, I'm not really, I'm not discounting uh, the, the, the ongoing validity of the gift of prophecy where God speaks through people to his people. 
but uh, some, some new revelation about the very nature of God and his purposes on the earth and this kind of thing that somebody claims to have received from God. That, that sort of fascination with spiritual novelty is dangerous. And here's the thing, it appeals to human pride. It appeals to human pride to know something that nobody else knows. So we think it's spiritual, we, we, and that's what makes it even more sinister. We take something dangerous and clothe it in, in sort of spiritual concept or language, and we're very, very vulnerable to deception and destruction that would follow from that because we think, I know something you don't know. It's like child's playground stuff. Oh, we can edit that out of the... Uh... But number four, one of the dangers today is just easy access to bad teaching. You know, Paul was, was writing about false teachers who were in the church at Ephesus. At that time, you had to come, you know, you had to get in somehow. I mean, you had to at least be in the city and have people's ears, but more likely people in the church. And like I said, probably from among the elders them, uh, themselves. In our world, you could sit in the comfort of your own home and get on the internet and go heretic shopping. You know, I mean, you can, you can find it just as plentiful uh, as you can anything else on Amazon. You could just find you know, false teaching abounds. It's just easy to find access to. And, um, you know, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he says the time will come, you know, when men will not put up with sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate among themselves people in accordance with their own desires. They'll find teachers who will tell them what they want to know that's appealing to their itching ears. And see, now you don't even have to accumulate them. They're just out there on the internet. You can just go harvest them digitally, right? People who will tell you what you want to hear, people who will tell you what you already believe, you form your, your beliefs and convictions through whatever other sources, and then you find people who will tell you those are the right convictions. And the point is, it's just so easy, uh, it's so easy to, to, to get access to teaching that's all over the spectrum. Some really good teaching too, by the way, right? But that, that is just a danger um, if we're undiscerning. And number five, that could uh, be number one, I suppose, is just lack of biblical knowledge. That the, 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 danger, we're, the danger that makes us susceptible um, to being taken by false teaching is just a lack of biblical knowledge. Bishop J.C. Ryle, a, a, a British a bishop in the 19th century, said, ignorance of Scripture is the root of every error in religion and the source of every heresy. Ignorance of Scripture. Now, again, that, that, that may be, in our minds, a little, bit, a little bit too simply stated because you can know a lot of Bible and still be misled. In fact, false teachers often don't think they're false. 
They, they think it's true, and they're teaching from the Bible. And so it's a little, it's a little more um, complex than that, but uh, it'd be a good start to remedy that problem, that we, we sort of close the gap on biblical illiteracy in the church, um, because that is maybe the greatest of all the dangers on that list. And so there are two defenses that I've identified here. And one is study the Bible. Read the Bible. You know, I, I, I may have said this before because I know I've said it in, other, in, in conversations in different places. I don't remember if I've said it congregationally, but if you think about um, church life now compared to even, you know, 20, 25 years ago, it wasn't so long ago, if you were, when, when, when Monica and I were uh, younger, younger, still young, we're just er, you know. Um, <laughs> when, we, when we had little kids and we were, you know, our family was involved in church. If you were, if you were really involved, uh, you know, actively involved in a local church, Bible-believing church, you were, you were probably in a Sunday school class on Sunday morning. Um, you were hearing the Bible preached on, on Sunday morning, again on Sunday night and on Wednesday night. Just by, just by coming, in other words, just by being involved, you're getting the Bible probably four times a week. And now, uh, generally a person who considers themselves, and I'm not making this up, this is like Barna Research, Pew Forum, and those kind of things. Somebody who considers themselves active in church is... Um, on average, somewhere attending church between two and three times a month on Sunday morning, which means they're, they're hearing, perhaps hearing the Bible preached two or three times a month rather than, you know, four times a week. Now, I say that just to illustrate what by default um, is a challenge against us in in acquiring and maintaining, building just a knowledge of the scriptures, that having our thinking shaped by what, what the Bible says. It's a big book, isn't it? But that's one of the primary defenses. Not only is it good for our soul, it is a living word. And it's good for us on, on, on that level, on a spiritual level, but uh, as a defense against false teaching. That's primary. The second uh, related to that would, in your study, be guided by the historic Christian faith. Now, again, I, um, in contemporary American evangelicalism, it, it has uh, anything that smacks of tradition is bad. Okay, the word, the, when I was coming up and you know, non-denominational charismatic churches, I mean, tradition really was bad. Like, that was a bad thing. That was kind of the way that was taught. Anything traditional was a bad thing. And there's lots of it that can be cold and stale and dead, right? And, 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 and binding and all those kinds of things. Like, I understand where that comes from. But the consequence of, of untethering ourselves from that uh, the, the consequence is, in some cases, I immeasurable. And I won't elaborate on that anymore because I could uh, say lots and lots about where some trends 
are probably heading in the future because they have so aggressively untethered themselves from the historic Christian faith uh, that they may find themselves just drifting into a sort of outer space, never uh, to recover uh, what they have left, what they've departed from. But again, knowing that truth has been discovered and proclaimed all down through the centuries of the church, as perverted as it's gotten at times, as much error has been mixed in at times, as much moral depravity has been present in the church at times. We don't have to look back in history to see examples of that. But we want to be guided by a faith that is anchored in the distant past. So I want to conclude with just offering a few suggestions of resources that might help you do that, especially if you're, uh, many of you have some. You, you've got your go-tos um, in, in your own personal Bible study, group Bible study, um, all kinds of things that are, that are helpful to you in this regard, um, especially for those who may be new to such a pursuit or just looking for something different. I want to offer a few um, suggestions. The first is called My Daily Office. It's a phone app. Okay, an iPhone app. This actually comes from uh, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, so this is a little bit unfamiliar to many of us. Um, but one of the things that I like about it and commend to people about it is um, it does have structured prayers uh, that are interwoven with just Bible reading. So unlike devotionals um, that you have a lot of times that have one little verse and then somebody else's thoughts about that verse... Um, this sort of in, invites just Bible reading mixed in with your prayer time, but it structures the prayers and sort of walks you through uh, how to pray. And they become um, sort of springboards into your own free prayers. So for instance, it'll open with a, a prayer of confession. There's a written prayer there that you can just pray. And then pray your own private prayers of confession. And then you open the Psalms. You read and pray the Psalms and read other scriptures from any number of reading plans that you might have. Lots of those available out, out there. Reading the Bible through the year, reading the Bible through in two years, three years, or whatever. But all, any of those can be inserted in there. Uh, but it just provides a framework for praying not only some structured prayers, but those that are, are grounded in a historic faith. So this is one, one tool that you can use that does both of these things at the same time. That is, it, it, it gets you reading the scriptures, it gets you, uh, keeps you connected to the historic Christian faith. The second is a book called For the Love of God by D.A. Carson. I have actually not read this book, um, but I, I could just about commend anything to you written by D.A. Carson solid, solid guy. But this particular book um, is it's a daily devotional sort of book, daily readings, but they are all from um, an annual reading plan that was developed by a Scottish minister named Robert Murray McShane. So it's a read through the Bible in a year. You actually read through the New Testament twice in the year, I think is the way he set that up. Um, maybe the New Testament and the Psalms. But it's just one of these daily Bible reading plans and then, and then his Reflections are from those readings. Um, so I think a sort of a unique resource as far as I've encountered and a, and a really solid one. 
Um, the next, if you're looking more in the lines of just a traditional devotional kind of reading, if you've never done that as part of your um, own spiritual life, uh, Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon. Um, so hard to go wrong with Spurgeon, I think. But, um, but, but there are readings for morning prayer, readings for evening prayer. And um, again, that's sort of how the daily office is structured and, and sort of historically how the church has lived its rhythms of prayer, morning prayer, evening prayer, some, sometimes uh, midday prayer as well. But morning and evening by Spurgeon. And then finally, um, a more contemporary one and just a devotional, but a, a good devotional, if I were recommended to anybody as the one at the top of the list, I would say is New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp. We just sang about New Morning Mercies. Uh, we didn't do that on purpose, but um, anyway, that's just a, uh, that's just a, um, a, a solid devotional God. He's going to have meaty, meaty stuff there. Um, he has a background as a, as a biblical counselor. And so he just brings um, both biblical thinking and a really big heart for human issues to everything that he writes. Uh, and, it's, and it's just really well done. There are others, again, many of you have others that you would recommend to people. But to go back to what I said last week about at the beginning of the year, make habits, not resolutions. This would be one of the habits that whatever rhythm you could get yourself in, opening the scriptures, spending time with the Lord, hearing him speak through the text of scripture and by his spirit out of that, and him hearing you then voice your prayers to him, that habit um, will be edifying in ways that we can't imagine or measure. And I would say, even with something like that daily office app, which is, is, is pretty rhythmic, rhythmic and structured, um, you do that for 30 days. And then tell me if you don't find, you, you sort of miss anytime you miss it. In other words, that you look forward to that the next morning, waking up the next morning to spend time with the Lord um, because it just, it sort of just brings, brings your day and your life and your week into rhythm and into focus. There are lots of tools that can do that, but there are some suggestions. But either way, uh, let's be people who immerse ourselves in the word of God, who anchor ourselves in a historic Christian faith because the gospel is at stake. It is not recreational. It is not abstract. It is not unimportant. It's eternally important that we understand the gospel clearly and that that's what we're communicating to people. Well, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word indeed and um, for, for what you've had to say to us through it today. Lord, I pray that you would just speak by your spirit to every heart here. Um, you know where we are. We know where we are to some extent. And we know what our struggles are in this regard. Um, we know how busy we feel, how hard it is to carve out the time um, to really study the Bible. It, it's, it is so easy to be distracted from that. 
But God, we, we just pray that you would speak to us and guide us as we have need to respond to this message today. That you have truth you want to impart to us and you have life you want to impart to us from your living and true word. So God, would you guide us in all the ways we need it that you might make us individually more like Jesus and together uh, make the church a bride ready to be received by her bridegroom. And we ask it in his great name. Amen.